You're listening to The Rocking Parenthood Show on Little Rockers Radio. Thanks for joining us. Today we're looking at ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder and ASD, Autism Spectrum Disorder. We're talking to Dr Beth Johnson, who is a postdoctoral researcher at Monash University. She's leading an ambitious research program to transform how we understand and diagnose Autism Spectrum Disorder or ASD. Autism, which affects around 100,000 children in Australia, significantly impacts a child's ability to play, to communicate and to relate to their peers. Critically, most kids with ASD have movement problems which hampers their ability to draw, write and dance. We know that early intervention is key to helping kids on the autism spectrum, yet families wait in limbo for over three years on average to receive a diagnosis for their child. And this simply is too long. So we're catching up with Dr. Beth Johnson today to talk to her further about this. But I thought that we could start off initially by explaining what ASD and what ADHD is. They can go hand in hand, but they are really quite different. So autism is what we call a neurodevelopmental disorder. So that's a change in how the brain is wired and it starts in um, in utero, so during pregnancy and during, during infancy. Um, and so the, the core symptoms of autism, and it's quite a broad, like, it's quite broad how this looks, is uh, communication difficulties, um, narrow interests and repetitive behaviours. So communication includes things like how the child talks, but also um, how they understand other people's communication. So it can be things like body language or facial expressions and how they themselves use um, body language and facial expressions. Yeah, it can be things like unusual eye contact or um, how like their facial expressions might be flat or um, might be inappropriate to the context. So um, laughing when everyone else is supposed to be sad, like in funeral yeah. and things like that, yeah. So for the outsider who's looking in, a, a, a mum or a dad or a parent who's looking into a family that has a child with autism, what does it look like? So for them, um, it can be parents. Um, they, mm-hmm. They're often very in tune with their child so that they understand that how their child presents in you know in a social context is quite different. So uh, and there's this term that psychologists use called scaffolding. So a lot of parents scaffold their their child so they help make the environment calm for their child and predictable and stable. Um, and they advocate for them so they know what will um, trigger their child and um, trigger meltdown. So for for an outsider, it's one of the really obvious things that you you might see in a social context or in you know in um, in a supermarket or a playground or in school with a child having a meltdown. So that's where, um, you know, they just have this big um, let out of emotional energy and yeah. um, fatigue. And so when we see those kinds of meltdowns, it's generally overstimulation from sounds and smells and social expectations or a change in routine or something they're not used to. So parents do a lot of um, managing day-to-day of keeping those things that they know will... Um, trigger meltdown, keeping those in check so that the child stays, you know, everything's calm and predictable. Yeah, and I, I remember, I seem to remember there was this really powerful video going back a couple of years ago of a child uh, 
uh, I think a child that had autism and it, they were in a train station and it showed it from their perspective. So all of the sounds around them from the train, the people walking past, the sounds over, I guess, the intercom system, people dropping money, using money, buying things, like the sounds that generally we manage to filter out ourselves and only concentrate on, on what we need to, um, that this young child couldn't. So it was completely overwhelming uh, for him. And I guess that that's from a child's perspective with autism. Can you give us a bit more of an understanding of what it is like for a child with autism? Um, I think that um, for any listeners, I think it's a great video to go and watch. So there's a lot of um, issues with uh, what they call sensory processing. So um, for example, when we put on our clothes in the morning, we kind of if we put on a woolen jumper, it might be a little bit scratchy at first, but we can chew it out after a while. Um, and it's the same with if we're sitting in an office and there's a lot of background chatter, we can just sort of chew it out. But for kids with autism, they have a lot of trouble with that filtering process, so it all goes in. <laughs> so they're trying to concentrate and they just hear everything all of the time, or they 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 can't chew. They have difficulty tuning out those smells or textures or things like that. So, so And that can be very overwhelming. So um, yeah. I think that's the other thing too, is it's not just frustrating. It then becomes um, like you become overstimulated. So, uh, I mean, a lot of um, newborn children go through that as well. Like when you've got a newborn child and um, there comes a point at which they just cry and cry and cry. It's mm. like that, but it carries through into childhood for a lot of kids with autism. Yeah, and I guess, and this is at a very basic level, but as a as a parent, when you think of it at the end of the day when you're tired and you're trying to cook dinner and you've got the kids coming and going, Mum, 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 what's for dinner? And you're trying to get things ready and the stove's cooking and the TV's going and, and everything just seems overwhelming. We can become quite frustrated as parents. So um, I guess as an, an analogy, it sort of shows how, how it can feel, but on a scale times 10 for children just to have that level of understanding. I think that's a good analogy. We, you know, like we're thinking about making dinner and things like that, you know, all of the noise from our kids is, you know, that puts us on edge and that's a high priority for all of us. And, um, you know, as we're trying to get the dinner on the table and the phone's ringing and everything, so we've got all of these demands placed upon us. And that's how it can feel for all of the information coming into it. It all feels like very high priority but at a very sensory level. Yes, and, and, and on an ongoing basis. And I guess that's why when children do start start to leave the home so whether they do start kinder or they do, they do start school there's a lot of nerves and anxiousness on behalf of the parent as well and we were talking before we started the interview that there's still unfortunately a bit of a, a perception I guess out there of not in my backyard so you quite often hear and I've heard it before unfortunately parents saying oh that child's very disruptive to the class I'm going to have a chat to the teacher about that or I don't like the way my child's not learning because that child's naughty in class etc instead of a step back to go okay so there's obviously something going on there that child may have this or this and perhaps I should explain to my child that this and this and this can happen um, we don't seem to have that focus as a community as much anymore so I guess that's a long-winded way of leading into the question what can we do as a community what can parents do as a community to help yeah so I think um, there's a lot of things that um, it's, it's mostly the dis disruptive behaviours that um, that come to our attention. So a child being a bit socially awkward 
um, doesn't rankle people so much, but you know the aggressive behaviors behaviors and the meltdowns are really the things that parents object to. But the thing with meltdowns is that they can often be avoided if you know the things that sort of seem insignificant to us but are really important to the child are respected. So things like um, you know and need for routine or it's okay if the child wears the same jumper every day um, because that feels most comfortable with them and that child not being teased. Um, or um, sometimes kids in the classroom can be really naughty if they know that um, I said, uh, the, the child not with autism but they know that, that you know the little child likes to have um, their pencils lined up in a certain way or you mm. know in a certain way to organise their desk and other kids will come along and mess that up because they know it'll elicit a reaction. And um, you know, that over the course of a day, um, just having like teaching kids a bit more tolerance and respect about what autism is and um, you know, how to accommodate that child and then they won't be disruptive. They, a lot of these things won't come to be a problem. So and, and some of it's education for teachers too. So um yeah, like if there's going to be any big changes to the routine that day that the child is aware, um, a lot of his visual cues too. So if a child, rather than being verbally told, um, you know, here are the things that are going to happen today, having that writ a written list or a series of pictures about, you know, what class they're going to go to um, can be really helpful. You know, if like say for example, if to rip sometimes either work on a group project or the class is being split up to do, you know, lots of different activities and it's really noisy, um, then you know it's going to be can be really overwhelming for the child and just giving them some space to calm down during that or after that. Um, and uh, a lot of parents use like sound cancelling headphones for their child, and um, but they also which can be very effective for a lot of children because it cuts out all of that background chatter. They can just yes. hear the the teacher without all of the background noise, um, but they also worry about like the stigma of that child wearing headphones in the classroom and how that will look will become a you know source of teasing or bullying for their child. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, so then educating the other kids that like oh leave that kid alone, they, that's actually really helping them and is going to make them feel a bit calmer. So yeah, and that's I mean it's the education side is really important. I mean my kids came home late last year and asked about the headphones. There were some kids. Uh, in their classes that were wearing headphones and they were curious as to why those children were wearing the headphones and they weren't allowed to take in their own headphones to listen to music. So uh, that educational element and letting children understand, I mean, as soon as my kids knew what, it, what they were for, they were like, oh, okay, it, it, but they just needed to be educated. Um, so as a parent or a carer who's sitting home and they're at a, their children are young, they're not sure, what are some early signs for parents to be looking out for? Yeah, so often um, the, the big early flag for a lot of families is uh, the is eye contact. So kids um, not making like eye contact in, at the right times or maybe using prolonged eye contact. Um, another one which is a bit more subtle um, but is a good early marker is some um, like motor control problems. So late to walk or um, or a little bit awkward in the way they walk um, or very clumsy in how they use uh, in how they you know, write and use a pen um, or some of those fine motor skills. So um, so and so what we're really looking for is. Um, social communication problems, so how they're communicating to others the language that they're using and um, sort of this inflexibility or need for routine. 
So, and in the, the, the other big flag is um, delayed language onset, um, or so it would, that's like uh, whole phrases and sentences around three years. If that's not there, then that's a really big flag for autism. Um, it can also be other things as well. So it can be things like um, hearing or um, some other motor issue, because we yeah. tend to think about um, you know language is quite natural, but actually, you know, we use lots of fine muscles to, to produce language and speak. Yeah. So um, there can be other things, but those are some early warning signs. And the other ones are, yeah, the, um, the inflexibility, need for routine, um, and sensitivity to textures and sounds and tastes and things like that. And so you spoke about language development there as a potential um, cursor or a sign or a red flag, and that can generally be around, you know, can be picked up at around three years of age. Is that is that generally the age of diagnosis where it can be picked up, is it? So, yeah, no, it's usually around three to four years is the most common age of diagnosis, so, um, or earliest age. Um, for a child, a child who's got a milder form of autism, so they're a little bit what we call high functioning, so or socially adept. So they might be, and, and girls can often fit into this category too. So they'll sit and watch and observe social interactions and can be very good at mimicking them. And so it can be transitions like um, transition into prep or into a high grade. Um, or into high school um, that uh, as the social expectation increases um, a lot of their learned strategies start to fall apart a little yeah. bit and it creates a lot of social issues then and that's where they can um, see diagnosis. So, um, so, so some of those kids who are a little bit better socially um, it could be you know even up to age you know um, 6 to 12 so much, yeah. much later, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I had a friend actually recently whose daughter was um, diagnosed at, I think she was 11 or 12 years old, and the mum, um, my girlfriend just felt so guilty, like how can I have not picked up on this? What was I doing wrong? But it can be, especially for high functioning, it can be very hard to pick up on or to, to at least diagnose. Like some perspective as well, like, like they're your children and they're totally normal to you. You know, yeah, <laughs> sometimes yeah. you know, can to see them in the context of other yeah. kids and how they're behaving. It can be really hard to miss. And yeah, girls can just be really good at, at masking things. And, um, and we do scaffold as well, as I mentioned. So we, we do yeah. often fill in the gaps for our kids. And, um, you know, if, say if there's a party at home or whatever, we would learn to contain our child to make it like to smooth things over as much as yeah. possible. Yeah. Now, when we first met, um, we spoke a lot around autism and ADHD and diagnosis and how sometimes a diagnosis can go hand in hand. We've spoken a lot uh, so far about autism. Can we have a look at ADHD and um, can you explain to us what ADHD is? Yeah. So around... Um around uh, uh, 20 to 50% of kids with autism also have ADHD symptoms as well, which is important to keep in mind. And then for kids with ADHD, around um, 20 to 30% also have autistic-like symptoms, so that might not meet full diagnosis, um, but there can be some features of both. Um, so for uh, ADHD, um, that's 
there's sort of two main branches that we think about. One is hyperactive symptoms, and those are really obvious. So um, the kid is on the go all the time, um, often high-risk-taking behaviours, but not always, but, you know, things like jumping off high branches or um, off fences and things like that. Um, you know, just, um, yeah, scaling garages. Um, so very impulsive and hyperactive, um, and then on the go all the time. So they often um, love to be outdoors, jumping on trampolines all the time, and um, running around. Uh, or having, and the other one is having trouble sitting still in the classroom, which is um, very obvious in the classroom. Um, yeah. And then there's the inattentive symptoms, which are often overlooked. So that's um, difficulty paying attention to information and retaining information. And so there's a lot of people who've got um, yeah, inattentive type ADHD. So uh, and uh, often and it's often parents when they, their, their child is diagnosed with ADHD, they're like, oh, actually that explains a lot about me too. Um, and their struggles in school, just having difficulty, um, you know, remembering dates and times and things, you know, things that where they were meant to be handed in, and you know. They have trouble retaining that kind of information and attending to it. And there's another thing too, which is what we call social inattention, and so that can be things like paying attention to social cues, like when someone's, you know, bored of what you're saying now, and they just keep rabbiting on. So yeah. uh, that can be a part of ADHD too. And that's where a good um, pediatrician and clinician can help out in teasing the part whether that is more autism or ADHD. Mm, okay, and so we spoke with uh, when we spoke about autism, we spoke about um, the, the child, how the parent can can help with scaffolding around the child to make situations better. Uh, the use of headphones within the school environment, setting up the school environment so um, it is is a better environment for children with autism. What about ADHD? What what are some of the ways that children with ADHD ADHD can be supported into to kinder and school? Yeah, so kids with ADHD love to be on the go so it's very calming for them to be up and moving around which can be disruptive in some classrooms so it's just about making sure that they're given the respect and space to do that and it can often help them think better if they're, they're able to fidget a bit and move around um, so or just being able to say sit, and sit still and concentrate for a period and then be given a break and then resettle and then um, back into class again after a bit of fidgeting and getting up and moving around. So it's a, it's a bit um, unrealistic to expect a child with, um, particularly with hyperactive symptoms, to be able to sit still for several hours at a time. So, and make sure that, and I think the other thing too, um, there can be a tendency with schools to, um, uh, like, to punish children with ADHD for being disruptive in the classroom by saying you can't play at lunchtime and that's only going to make it much, much worse down the track. I can see why that's tempting, but it's not really helpful to them. So, yeah, make, they need to get that energy out. Um, so the other thing that can be um, problematic is that they, they can be very impulsive, as I mentioned, so um, things like, yeah, doing quite dangerous things like climbing up on very high trees and, um, and yeah, stacking boxes and standing on top of them. And, um, but it can also be that they um, can lash out in the classroom, so the child next to them might be clicking their pen and they'll turn around and whack them. So um, just about um, both the parents, like the teachers, 
uh, or the um, you know childcare, listening to the parents about what strategies work best for their child. Like parents often know what will work, and they often have strategies that they've been taught from clinicians, so um, you know their pediatrician or um, other you know psychologists. So parents often have a lot of the answers, and so it's just about working with the parents to um, see, okay, that didn't quite work today. Um, can we do about that? How do you think we could change this together? So, yeah, because um, I think importantly for parents, they they really dread picking up their child in the afternoon and hearing what, what their child's done mm-hmm. that, that could have been very disruptive and so their heart really <laughs> sinks into their stomach during those times. And so, and a lot of that comes because all they hear is bad news all the time and so, and that can then also turn off the parents engaging with the school and and and, and vice versa, the, the parents turning off, to, the teachers turning off to the parents um, about finding strategies together that can help that child. And um, with just a little bit of effort and time taken to work out how to manage it between the parents, the child and the teacher, um, it can actually have a lot of long-term benefits. So, um, yeah, finding like parents even asking their teachers to say, don't just give me bad news all the time, give me like something really good that my child did today and about shifting the teacher's mindset to what are the really good things that my child did Yeah, I did an interview actually with a lady, it was probably going back a year or a year and a half ago, and her son is uh, 15 or 16 now, and she uh, mentioned that when her son first started primary school, she went in and spoke with the school, and she really encourages you to not shy away from being an advocate for your child. So to go into the school and, and let them know that you are an advocate for your child and that you will be checking in to see how um, how your child is going within the school and to work with them so that your child and their, their friends and the other class members can get the most out of um, being in class together. And she said that that uh, always leading with kindness, but that really set up a, a good relationship with the school and the school were aware that she was going to be checking in on a regular basis and that being an advocate for your child is okay. It is more than okay. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Okay, and so for a parent at home with a younger child, again, what are some of the early signs or flags for ADHD? <clears throat> so um, I think for, so for definitely for ADHD, they they don't typically diagnose before about the age of five or six because um, some of the um, hyperactive and impulsive symptoms is just a part of like say yeah. being a toddler and you know those those outbursts and impulsive things and, and also you know running around endlessly is such a toddler thing. Um, so uh, yeah, so they tend not to diagnose until the child's in school. Um, but some of the early flags are yeah, just being on the go all the time, having trouble sleeping and settling and unwinding. Um, and some of those meltdowns are also really common in ADHD as well. So, mm. um, and again, that can be just from overstimulation. So some of those sensory processing problems are also common in um, ADHD also. Okay, so we've spoken uh, about autism and about children who can go to kinder, can go to school, and I guess can be supported uh, through their day-to-day lives. But there is also a high percentage of uh, children with autism that also have uh, other intellectual disabilities. Can you explain a little bit more about this as well? There's about a third of kids um, with autism and um, 
another probably about 25% of kids with ADHD who've got intellectual disability and sometimes this means that they can't attend um, typical school. They are often in a um, high needs school, a special needs school. Yeah, and so they have some additional challenges and means for families um, and also um, in terms of picking that up in early childhood, it creates some additional flags for families as well. So they sometimes get picked up a little bit sooner because um, their development is clearly off track. There's sort of two halves of the, the um, autism community at the moment. There's sort of those kids and, and young adults and adults who are able to self-advocate and they, they often get along fine. They will go on to have meaningful relationships and you know get married and have kids and do all of those things that we wish and hope for. But there's a large chunk who um, have severe disabilities. Um, you know, we see things like um, headbanging and aggression and they're non-verbal and they have trouble with toileting issues and things like that. And so so for them, they're reliant on their carers and caregivers and extra support. So, but they often go a little bit under the radar because, mm. um, you know, yeah, a lot of families, um, you know, they, they're attending other non-mainstream areas and so they can be a little bit hidden uh, from society in many ways. But it's important to know that those sort of families exist so we can give them support also. Okay, so uh, can you tell us just a little bit about the work that you're doing at Monash? Yeah, so I'm leading a project to um, help redevelop how we diagnose and um, treat autism and ADHD. So at the moment, um, even though we know that autism and ADHD are genetic and neurobiological-based disorders, um, that how they're diagnosed at the moment is based on the symptoms that a child presents with, and that may not always be the best indicator for what treatment is appropriate. Um, so there's a big push um, for all um, mental disorders now to um, define them based on their genetic underpinnings and their, um, and their neurobiological underpinnings. Uh, so that we can come up with better treatment. So we're uh, at the moment we're running a big project um, looking for a thousand families from across um, Victoria to take part in our research. Um, so we're um, characterising autism and ADHD symptoms and um, very detailed behaviours as well and um, collecting uh, genetic samples from mother, father, and child wherever possible. Sometimes you know parents are separated, and that's fine. We can still do great um, genetic research just with the mother and the child, or the father and the child. We're also after families as well. So we're interested in how sometimes autism and ADHD run in families, um, and or why in some cases it's just arise spontaneously in that child for the first time in a family. Um, and so uh, that can tell us some really useful information about how these disorders develop and how we can um, diagnose them much more quickly. So at the moment the time to diagnosis is on average around three years which is a really long time when you um, want to get early intervention which we know is one of the keys to helping children have a very uh, much less stressful time of things in their childhood. Um, so we're trying to reduce that time and we're hoping that with some you know more um, clear-cut 
diagnostic markers, but that'll help reduce that time. Okay, and all the in, the links and the information for that, it's called the Magnet Project. All of the links are on our website at littlerockersradio.com.au. So if you're keen to find out more, I am interviewing Beth again uh, next week with more information around this project. But if you're keen to find out more, hop onto the Little Rockers website and follow the links. Thank you so much for joining us today, Beth. Fabulous, thank you. That was Dr. Beth Johnson, a postdoctoral researcher at Monash University leading the Magnet Project, talking to us on Little Rockers Radio. Thanks for listening.